Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. All right, Paul, I'm getting the energy up. I'm getting the energy up. Uh, please keep please keep this <laughs> into the it. final. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Paul, we're, we're doing hotcakes tonight. It's been like six months since we did hotcakes. I'm very excited. So coming in, coming in hot tonight. And we have some great articles to talk about. But uh, how are you doing? I, it's so nice to ask. I'm doing great. I have been legitimately excited for uh, this episode because it's been so long since we've done it. And I feel like these are a little bit freer, looser. I get to learn from smart people. Like a group of smart people who I also consider friends, which is just, it's nice. So good energy, Matt. I love i love where you're coming from, buddy. So uh, before we introduce our two spectacular co-hosts uh, by way of their picks of the week, Paul, would you tell people, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Yep. Happy to, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge most times, but this is obviously a little bit different. This is This time we are the ostensible experts, but as you know, Matt, we have a couple of real experts, and then also us to talk about some stuff. Yeah. Well, first, I want to remind the audience that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And now, before we get to the articles, let's go to the great Dr. Rahul Ganatra for his pick of the week. And Rahul, we're going to you first, uh, just because I know you get a lot of anxiety that your pick isn't as good as other people's, even though, my opinion, they're always they're always excellent. So great to see you and tell the audience what's your pick of the week. Hi, Matt. Thank you for acknowledging how difficult it is to give a pick of the week after Paul. <laughs> um, so I just finished reading. Well, I shouldn't say finished. I'm almost done reading uh, the second book in the Expanse series. I don't know if people are familiar with this. It is also yes. a show on Amazon Prime. Yeah, this is a series uh, by an author, James S.A. Corey, and it is kind of an epic space opera Intergal- interplanetary geopolitical, you know, spy craft. It, it, it is a thrilling ride. The first book I thought was a little slow, but I'm uh, almost done with the second book and it's, it's totally worth the ride. I hear the show is good. I've not seen it, but the, the books are fantastic. So I, I highly recommend uh, the expanse books by James S. A. And I, I think the first book is Leviathan wakes, right? That's it. And yes. I, I read it. I haven't got to the second one, but now you're kind of pulling me back towards that. So maybe I'm going to have to check it oh, out. Oh, you got to hang on. Yeah. I almost, I wasn't going to, but then a friend of mine said, you got to read the second one and it really starts to, to pick up and get spicy. That's so fun. I'm in the exact same boat, Matt. Like literally I read the first, I'm like, that was pretty good, but also these are family Bible sized and I don't know if I have two more in <laughs> yeah. it, but if they, if they pick up, I, I will revisit. Oh, stick with it. Stick with it. All right, we're going to give even more distance from your pick of the week to Paul's. Uh, Dr. Nora <laughs> Toronto, we are now kind of neighbors, and you and Paul are really neighbors. Uh, you've you've moved to the city of brotherly love. Welcome, and uh, tell people how is it, and uh, what's your pick of the week? Thank you so much. Glad to be here. I haven't cited Paul yet, but, but I think he may actually be intentionally avoiding <laughs> trying to see me in our neighborhood. So. He's seen you 17 I, I times leave, already. <laughs> If we could not accidentally dox us on air, that would be super duper. <laughs> I said this Philly is a huge city, Paul. That's all so I big. said. <laughs> <laughs> we can cut the, we can bleep that if you want. <laughs> it's fine. 
Um, so in my time since moving, I have had a little bit of time to watch TV. And I actually just started Cheers, which I know is a throwback, throwback, throwback. But I realized I, I had heard folks talking about it for a long time. And upon moving away from Boston, I decided that I should watch a show that was set in Boston and really good so far. <laughs> You are an old. Just soul, wait for Nora. the spinoffs, Nora. You got <laughs> really? Frasier, what? Jacket. Wait, Frasier is a spinoff of Cheers. Wow. Okay. Well, I feel like I just oh spoiled a major part of Cheers. <laughs> Paul, we are so old. This is this is just. Yep. I have never this felt older brilliant. on this show than right right at that moment, Paul. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, enjoy your youth, Nora. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Paul, pick of the week. Yeah, thanks. I'm going to recommend the movie Men, which it's a so Men. It's a 2022 movie that came out. Um, it's by Alex Garland, who is a director that I deeply love. He directed the movie Annihilation, which is uh, you know, a, a movie I probably recommend in the past. It's a movie I think about all the time. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. So he directed this movie called Men that just came out, and it's about this woman who is in an abusive relationship. It's exactly as grim as it sounds, by the way. And basically witnesses her partner plunge to his death outside the window and goes away to a, a British countryside to kind of regather herself and becomes menaced by a group of men sort of around. And it, it, it's, it's awfully hard to explain, but the men are all played by the same actor. And it's this really like hypnotic, beautiful, fascinating interpretation and sort of meditation on the relationships between genders. But I also think, and I think I could say this without spoiling things, it's filtered through the myth of Pan. Um, there's some stuff with echoes that are sort of weirdly important. Like, and I didn't realize this until after I came home and I just, I, it was a movie I couldn't stop thinking about. And the more I sort of researched, the more I realized that that myth became applicable and it doesn't give you any easy answers. Like there's no, at the end, there's no sort of tidy resolution, but you just leave just stunned and sort of thinking the entire time about what they were trying to accomplish, and what they were trying to say. So it's, it's a beautiful horrifying deeply uncomfortable movie um so if that sounds at all appealing to you i would recommend the movie men which has to come out streaming sometime soon paul that is that that sounds a little too heavy for me i'm gonna i'm i'm not gonna lie i am gonna i still need to watch that uh what's that movie everything all all at once whatever that everything everywhere all at once yeah, yeah. I, also terrific. i still need to get i still need to get to that one well, thank you. Thank you for the pick of the week. If, if people want to, you know what, Paul, I'm not going to, I'm going to save my other pick of the week for another time. Uh, Cause I, I was, I was going to try to really annoy you with a pick of the week. That wasn't really a pick of the week, but I'll <laughs> say I recently watched the movie free guy. It's, it's predictable, but uh, it's a fun movie and uh, not nearly not as good. heavy as what Paul, uh, <laughs> Paul just recommended. So free guy. It's, it's uh, a, it yep. was fun. Goes down, <laughs> goes down easy. Just, just like <laughs> I like it, Paul. Nice and stupid. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Just rolls right off the brain. I could not remember a thing about it. Okay. All right. Let's get to some, let's talk some medicine here. So the first article, which I will be presenting, this was, this is, this is exciting, Paul, this, this new weight, weight loss drug, terzepatide, or is it a diabetes drug, Paul? I don't know. What are your thoughts? Weight loss drug or I, diabetes drug? Really... <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, peanut butter and jelly. You can't really have one without the other. So I think the, but it's, it's certainly the weight loss is the thing that everyone's talking about. Yes. So this is, this is a, the surmount one study. It was published in the New England Journal in July. Uh, and it, this, this was asking the question, does the glucose dependent insulinotropic polypeptide slash glucagon like polypeptide one. So let's just say GIP slash GLP one agonist, um, terzepatide, 
uh, lead to meaningful weight loss. And this was, they were looking at patients who had obesity or who were overweight with comorbidities, but did not have diabetes because we already know it does work for diabetes and there was weight loss seen in patients with diabetes. But this, they're, they're trying to get this approved as, uh, as a weight loss drug as well. So this was a, a phase three multi-center, randomized, placebo-controlled trial, lots of sites, uh, almost 120 sites in nine countries, and included just over 2,500 patients. And they basically looked at three different doses of terzepatide. There was the 5 milligram, 10 milligram, or 15 milligram dose, and then there was, uh, or placebo, so there was four groups, and there was a 20-minute, Paul, this is one of those ones like with these, like with semaglutide, which we talked about in the past, where you have to ramp the patient up first. So there was about a 20-week run-in period, and then they continued the study for another 52 weeks. So it was 72 weeks total. And uh, this was a positive trial. They were looking for percent change in weight from baseline and weight reduction of 5% or more, and my goodness, Paul, they, they had a huge weight. What, what were your feelings about the, the numbers that you were seeing here? No, I, I mean, alarming is not the right word, but like, I, I think one of my favorite things about the study is even the authors seem shocked at the extent of weight loss that they had. Like, I think they even comment this was more than what we expected. So like, I, I think it's, I think it's impressive. I think it's, I can't imagine why we wouldn't be excited about this medication right now. I think you'll talk about potential downsides, but right. really deeply compelling. I think on par with, as you're we talking about off, offline with, with metabolic surgery to some extent. So it's impressive stuff. So the numbers, I'll give the numbers, and then I want Rahul to to talk to us a little bit about this because uh, it's a positive trial, so he's going to talk about potential sources of chance or bias. So they they, they had a dose-dependent weight loss. Uh, the, the average weight loss in the lower group dose group was somewhere around 15%, all the way up to almost 21% weight loss uh, from baseline in the 15-milligram group of terzepatide. And in the placebo group, there was only a 3% weight loss. So that means that the absolute difference um, between groups was something like 12 to 18%. And just a just a huge number. I mean, patients lost like four to six inches on their waist circumference, and uh, about half the patients in the ten milligram group, and uh, about fifty seven percent of patients in the fifteen milligram group had over twenty percent weight reduction. So that's just just insane. Ra- Rahul, tell us what did you think about the setup of this trial? Yeah, <clears throat> I you chose the right statistics to report for the primary outcome and you highlighted the absolute risk reduction or excuse me the absolute change in uh in uh percent body weight from uh the end of the trial to baseline um and you also included the time frame so we that's enough information for us to calculate the number needed to treat um over the course of the study period um and it's going to surprise nobody that with uh an effect size this large the numbers needed to treat are like in the single digits so this is a very you know you do not need to treat a lot of patients to see uh a, a huge benefit with with these drugs so uh, i'm already my bias is that i'm very excited this is a very kind of thrilling paper to read and i need to sort of calm down and look for sources of chance and bias that could have uh made a positive result more likely So for any positive trial, I always start by thinking, okay, is the primary outcome in the paper the same thing that was decided a priori? And so to verify that, we look at the protocol on clinicaltrials.gov. You can just Google that number that's at the uh, bottom of the abstract. Primary outcome was unchanged from the beginning, so that's good. And then other sources of chance and bias that could have made this a positive trial, 
you could envision selection bias if this was a very, very highly selected population of patients. Maybe this is the sort of Goldilocks group of patients who is going to respond to the study drug. We don't have a lot of ways to decide if selection bias is a concern in a study apart from looking at the inclusion and exclusion criteria. And then another sort of uh, cheap and dirty way that I like to do this is to look at the consort diagram and the ratio of patients who are screened ultimately to the patients who are randomized is one very rough approximate measure. I feel a lot better about a study that included, you know, 90% of screened patients than I do about a study that included only 10% of patients. So that's not a hard and fast rule. You got to look at the reasons why patients patients were excluded and decide if you think that that matters. Um, unfortunately, the concert diagram, I couldn't find this in the paper or in the supplement. So that's one piece I was not able to evaluate. But, you know, apart from those two potential sources of bias, I'm not really seeing a lot to make me question uh, the, uh, the, the results of this study. And putting this in context of other uh, GLP-1 agonists, the effect size is really large. So you have to wonder, you know, will this... Uh, uh, Will this effect size remain to be the case uh, when these drugs are used in the long term? Um, That's a question that's not answered by this uh, study of only a year in duration. So there's still some unanswered questions that remain, but I'm having a hard time identifying any sources of chance or bias to make me question this positive result. And when I was looking, the exclusion criteria are really pretty extensive. And there was some stuff in there that I was just like... Uh, that I was just a little surprised by the so anybody with an either an active or untreated cancer, I mean that makes sense to to exclude them. But even if you had a serious cancer in the past and it was in remission, like let's say breast cancer or something, they would they would have excluded you from the trial. Um, and then Paul, anybody that has used cannabis in the past three months or or is using cannabis and unwilling to stop for the duration of the study, it would was excluded. And anybody with they like psychiatric illness, like on, that was unstable or history of suicide attempt. They they didn't have those patients in there, and I I couldn't really find I, I didn't find anything in the drug monograph that said it increases risk of mood disorder. So I'm not really sure what that was about. Did uh, any? But it was just I thought it was just uh, concerns over treatment adherence. I thought was the justification. Maybe, I read, but maybe I, maybe I'm making that part up. Yeah, and they they did say that the authors had some leeway to say like if they thought a patient wasn't going to be able to adhere to the study regimen, then they could exclude those patients. So, I mean, I, I think Rahul that that was to me a potential source. Like this was a fairly well selected group of patients, and uh, making sure you know that they didn't have any other major comorbidities that were un, uncontrolled at this time. But uh, but these patients did have obesity. They did have, or or they were overweight. They had other comorbidities. So it was it was not so so restrictive. Yeah, no, those are important, and that's that's in my view exactly how we should be thinking about the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Not just from a generalizability standpoint, but also with the lens of could this bias towards a positive or a negative result? Yeah. So I think that's great. And and this medicine, which I haven't used, but it seems like it comes, it, you start them out at two and a half milligrams weekly, and then you go up by two and a half milligrams every four weeks. So it takes quite a while to get to the, the fifth, 10 or the 15 milligram dose, which uh, was that speculating that's probably what they're going to recommend because there weren't many more side effects and there was a little bit extra weight loss at that, at that dose. So I think Ultimately, that's what this will be. And we were talking a little bit beforehand um, 
how is this going to happen in practice? Because with semaglutide, which we've talked about, when there is some evidence that when patients stop the study drug, they do start to gain weight again. And um, people are like, oh, so that's a downside. But uh, Paul, tell me what you think about this. But I, I think we're moving to the point where this is just going to be like a blood pressure medicine that you take chronically. And you know, if, if, if you stop your blood pressure meds, we know your blood pressure goes up. And I, I think with the weight loss drugs, it's going to be that sort of thing. We just haven't had weight loss drugs that were safe enough to take long term. And we don't know that yet about terzepatide or really semaglutide. Like, can we put people on these things for decades? But I think we need drugs that do that. Yeah. And this this will sound, again, please edit this to make me sound smarter than what I am. But like, I would be curious to know the tempo of weight loss, which I imagine will be hard to estimate. So at, at 72 weeks where patients are still losing weight, is there a plateau that they raised on that medication? Like, I, they, Yeah, they do. They, they had the... A lot of the weight loss was up front, and then it does start to plateau towards the end of it. But there are, there are some yeah. graphs in there talking about that. So yeah, I I think that they said uh, maybe for the higher doses they had almost reached the like weight loss plateau point, and so they were interested in the two year follow up um, as opposed to the the seventy two week follow up. Yeah, and I so th- this there will be we'll get more data from this. I think this is really exciting. We talked about this at ACP. Uh, I was I wasn't in the room, Paul. I was like uh, I was on a st- on a cell phone on a stick in the room. <laughs> but uh, you guys talked about this at yeah. ACP, where the lecture, the basic science lecture that they're sort the translational. I forget what they call it, Paul, but it's an endowed lecture, right? That they have every year. Uh, this this year it was on obesity, and they were talking about sort of re- trying to reset that hormone set point because when you start to lose weight, if you've ever been obese, if you've ever uh, attained a high weight, your body sort of reaches that as a set point, and we need ways to short circuit, try to reset that set point, work against the metabolism, the physiology that's uh, causing this recidivism once when people lose weight. So. I think this is really exciting that we have these newer agents that we're comfortable as internists using because we're using them for diabetes and we can co-purpose this in a lot of in a lot of cases. So I, I'm I'm still cautious. I'm not ready to start putting everybody on these, but I, I do think they will be used, and we'll just have to really watch out for safety signals uh, as these start to get approved. I don't think this is officially approved for weight loss yet, at least as of the day we're recording this. Correct. And I think you bring up an important point about safety. It's worth reminding uh, our listeners that clinical trials will generally tend to underestimate uh, adverse events uh, from treatments, especially if a run-in period where the treatment is given to all patients was used, because patients who don't tolerate a treatment during the run-in period tend to drop out of the study. So I don't think that all patients received the study drug in this study. I think the patients were just up titrated in the in the therapeutic yeah. arms. But it's something to look for in uh, randomized controlled trials, uh, and you know reasons why uh, adverse events uh, might be underestimated. So this is one reason why post marketing surveillance for adverse events is really yeah. important. Yeah, if you a trial a, a trial that I remember that did that was Secubitril Valsartan. They I believe everybody was really right. they really made sure they were selecting a group of patients that could tolerate that. This didn't seem to be the case. I was worried for that when I was initially looking through the protocol, but you know, that didn't seem to be the case in this study. So, well, how many hotcakes am I going to give this? Uh, you know, it's the summer, Paul. Uh, I don't know that there's any special t- type of hotcakes we have in the summer. So I'm going to give this, I'm going to give this four out of five. You know, I think, I think this was a very well done study. I, I do believe that this has a potential to be 
a real game changer for us uh, in primary care treating obesity. So I'm excited to have this as a potential tool, and I and I thought it was well done. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with you. I think barring horrifying safety outcomes that are have yet to be discerned, like this is going to be a landmark trial. Like I think this is going to be a really big deal for a really long time. So it's, it's exciting. This episode of The Curbsiders is brought to you by MedMastery, an award-winning online learning platform endorsed by the British Medical Association. So why sign up for MedMastery? Well, they offer courses on very useful things like EKG basics all the way up to the advanced stuff, point-of-care ultrasound, fluids and electrolytes with the great Dr. Joel Toff, pulmonary function testing, and even echocardiography. So lots of core skills that you need as an internist. So check them out. MedMastery's courses are taught by amazing educators. Their courses are peer-reviewed and CME accredited, and many residency programs are using MedMastery to train their clinicians. So if you're an educator and you need a group subscription, reach out and the friendly folks at MedMastery will be happy to help and assist you. Listeners of this show can claim a discount on any of their subscriptions. Just go to www.medmastery.com slash curbsiders to claim your discount. Again, that's www.medmastery.com slash curbsiders to claim your discount. This episode is brought to you by Green Chef. An audience, you know that Paul and I love Green Chef because their food is delicious, Both of us enjoy being in the kitchen. As I've said, Paul has more skills than me, but I do like to be in there. I like to cook these meals. I like to make them with my kids. They got to learn how to cook too. It's a fun thing for the family and their food is great. And now Green Chef is offering more customization than ever before with new organic and wild caught protein options. You can swap the protein in any meal that features chicken, beef, or salmon to suit your taste. And they'll deliver their recipes tailored to you directly to your front door. You can even mix and match meals from different preferences. So maybe you want vegan one time, keto the next. Go crazy with it. Green Chef will accommodate you. So go to greenchef.com slash curb135 and use the code curb135 to get $135 off across five boxes and your first box ships free. Once again, that's greenchef.com slash curb135 and use the code curb135 for $135 off across five boxes and your first box shipping free. Well, next up, Nora, tell us tell us what you've got on in store for the audience. So today I'm bringing an article from a recent issue of JAMA that we actually talked about a little bit in the digest already a couple weeks ago. Um, and this is data um, from the VA's PRIME study, um, which looked at how we can harness pharmacogenomic testing in choosing antidepressants and in potentially choosing better antidepressants for our patients. And as we all know, having started patients on antidepressants and then switching them uh, with time uh, as we we see that they're not working for one reason or another, um, choosing that initial antidepressant can be really tough, and there are a lot of different options. And so this study was a randomized control trial. It looked at about 2,000 patients in the VA system in the primary care setting, um, and they looked at uh, comparing pharmacogenomic testing upfront upon initiating or switching a single antidepressant 
treatment with uh, just standard of care. And interestingly, everyone got their DNA swabs done, um, and then the testing just came back to the pharmacogenomic group uh, about 24 weeks before the other group. And so that 24 weeks were the, the weeks in which there were clinical decisions made based on it or just based on standard of care. And so this trial was a pragmatic effectiveness study, which, Rahul, I'm not sure whether you can describe what exactly that means for us. Uh, I don't know that I have anything earth shattering to say about this beyond what you've already said, but pragmatic is typically used to mean that it's kind of embedded into the flow of patient care. So this is something that is kind of overlaid onto an existing clinical infrastructure. And it's a it's a powerful tool for research that uh, needs to be done quickly and was used a lot during the COVID pandemic. And uh, I should give full disclosure, some of the r- patients enrolled in this study were actually enrolled at my VA. And so I know some of the investigators involved in this. And uh, it's kind of cool to see research happening alongside clinical care like that. Nora, I'm sure the audience has the question, pharmacogenomics, I have a vague idea of what that means. What were they looking at here? My my simplified understanding is something about the SIP enzymes, but <laughs> can you can you tell us like how did they think that would change things? Why did they think that was important to look at? Yeah, so I think generally speaking, for a bunch of different drugs, both in psychiatry and kind of uh, you name it, uh, clopidogrel is one classic one. Uh, we know that they're metabolized differently by different people based on the different uh, gene alleles that they have. And so these tests look at the um, alleles that they have for these different enzymes that metabolize drugs. And there are a bunch of different commercially available tests that look at what we call pharmacogenomic testing, which is looking at a panel of these genes, what alleles patients have, and whether they're likely to be poor metabolizers, intermediate metabolizers, or high metabolizers, in which case they would be likely to have no response or, or less response or more response, kind of depending on where they fall in those buckets. And there was some sort of guidance given to the clinicians, just sort of like training how, how you might yeah. use these results. Yeah, so that's that's one piece of this study that is kind of interesting. I couldn't get a great sense, I'm not sure if anyone else could, about the exact guidance that was given to providers about the testing. And so they used in this study, they used one particular uh, company's uh, pharmacogenomic panel that looked at 12 genes. And um, you can actually look it up in the supplemental uh, uh, information in the paper. But um, the information and guidance about exactly what to do with that was a little bit unclear to me. It kind of gave the gene and then what it was associated with from a drug perspective, just the names of the drugs that different alleles were associated with different responses uh, to, but uh, kind of further steps from that weren't totally apparent to me. I I just found one line in the methods section where it said there was a substantial effort during the trial to educate clinicians and patients using educational videos, talks, written materials, and one-on-one consultation with local site investigators. So maybe there was someone on site that at least some of the time that understood what these were and you could bounce questions off of. Uh, I I feel like I would need significant guidance to, to, to use something like this. Yeah, and I think that's one of the challenges with utilizing these tests in real practice that that most many providers 
myself included, don't feel particularly comfortable with implementing them kind of in terms of interpreting exactly what the alleles uh, translate to um, and kind of where we land from a risk of adverse event perspective and and also kind of a, a likelihood of success from choosing drug X versus drug Y. You can just Google the gene site report and see a sample. And they basically list all of the sort of, you know, included antidepressants and then a sort of, uh, you know, green uses directed, yellow, some caution, red, a lot of interactions suspected. So I think that the design is meant for people like us who don't have a lot of content expertise uh, in how to interpret that. So that was all I was going to say. I Not worth interrupting you, Paul. No, absolutely was. Um, but I was just going to say, I think depression is such an interesting choice to sort of plant the pharmacogenomic flag. You know what I mean? Like I because its manifestations are so protean. And I also, I think it's a little bit of a frame shift in the way that we treat. I mean, you, you, you guys tell me, you know, when I think about how to treat depression, the way I conceptualize it is that all the medications based on the START-E trial work about the same. And you, you choose based on sort of adverse effects and side effect profile, not how effective the medication is. And even with this study, you know, the outcome of the medication efficacy was sort of a, I don't want to call it a throwaway, but it was not really the main thing that they were looking at. And in terms of the actual treatment effect on patients, did not seem all that impressive, nor have some of the previous trials that they cited, like the guy did one, like there's, I think some change scene, but nothing that's that blows you away. So it's just it's such a, I think, an interesting disease to sort of study using this framework when they're when I think how you measure it and how you how it looks and how patients respond to treatment is so I think it's nuanced to interpret as opposed to say something like blood pressure, where you have these sort of hard and fast numbers that are very easy to interpret. Nora, I think we should. I think we should get your sort of your take on this. Was this a mm-hmm. positive or negative trial? Would this be practice changing for you if you want to give it a hot cakes rating? Yeah, and so just to very briefly summarize the kind of results. Uh, so uh, they looked at the. Uh, the proportion of patients that had remission from depression symptoms over the 24 weeks of study. And they found uh, at 12 weeks that there was a slightly higher proportion of patients in the pharmacogenomic testing group than in the standard of care group that had remission of symptoms, but that actually did not, that difference did not persist at 24 weeks at the end of the trial. And then they also looked at the proportion of patients that had medication with a predicted drug gene interaction. Um, And uh, similarly, in the pharmacogenomics group, uh, there was a lower proportion of patients that had a likely uh, drug gene interaction that was predicted by the test. Um, So kind of that part suggests to me that folks were following the instructions to some extent of the panel. In terms of whether or not this is a positive or negative trial, we were kind of talking before air about uh, how to interpret this. I think nominally it's it's a positive trial. Um, they met two different time points. They met their endpoints. But from a clinical relevance perspective and clinically practice changing perspective, I don't know that this is this is ready for prime time right now for me. I I would agree. Um, Rahul or Paul, any other final comments on this before we move on? Yeah, I like that you identified the primary outcome as even though technically, you know, the endpoint in this trial was met, patients were more likely to be free of drug gene interactions. I almost consider that a surrogate outcome in that we don't really know if patients who got drugs with a high likelihood of drug gene interactions ended up having more side effects or worse control of their depression. 
And the only patient-centered outcome in the trial of remission at 24 weeks really did not show any difference. So I agree with your interpretation that although this was technically a positive study uh, in the sense that the primary outcome showed a difference, um, the the patient-centered component of that really was not persuasive to me that this is ready for widespread adoption. Well, next up, Paul Williams, a favorite topic of his is, is lower extremity edema. And Paul, you... This this was on the cutting room floor, so I I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to tell people you know once you tell them about this study I'm gonna ask them to tell you about the study that you had conceived uh, that you had conceived and suggested to me. So uh, tell us about this study about about seasonal edema. And I, I by the way I have no memory of this conversation. Um, so I have my, I have tape of it, Paul. I, so it was sticking my head. <laughs> no, I believe you. I have to listen. So this is this is from Lou et al. Um, it's an older article. It's actually I want to say it's. Uh, 2016, the Annals of Family Medicine, looking at the seasonality of ankle swelling. And I just, I love it so much because it's just so smart. Like the way they did things was so clever. And I, I just think we have to get points for that. I, I think we've talked before anecdotally. I had noticed that in the summertime when it's hotter outside, I see more patients lower extremity edema. And maybe that's because they're a little bit vasodilated, they're a little bit leakier. And as a result, they have underlying dependent edema or any other condition that might cause edema. It just seems worse in the summer. And that's something that I've always kind of noticed. And I'm like, somebody should study that. And whenever I say that, I mean somebody who is not me. And it looks like these authors identified kind of the same trend. And so they actually did the work. And by the work, they looked at Google searches and they looked at frequency and then sort of trended it against seasons. So they looked at a Google search for, I think it was ankle swelling or foot edema or foot swelling or sort of similar um, similar phrases and then plotted this over time on using Google Trends. So the software that kind of evaluates Google searches over a time frame. And sure enough, what they saw is that, so they, they, their null hypothesis was that it wouldn't make any kind of difference, so season wouldn't matter. So they, they compared what they found to basically a straight line versus this sort of sinusoidal pattern that would peak in the summertime and trough in the wintertime. And sure enough, their model of seasonality actually matched what the Google searches look like. So people are looking, they're Google searching ankle edema that peaks in June and is probably at its lowest in December. And the other thing that they said in the article that I just, I love that they even thought of this Heart failure admissions, by the way, the exact opposite trend. You see a much higher rate of heart failure admissions in the wintertime, and then it's decreased in the summertime. So you can't even chalk it up to that. And they also note that anecdotally, the patients where they're like, it's summertime, your legs are more swollen, don't tend to go on and actually develop like heart failure or end-stage renal disease, or you know, no one ever identifies um, you know, mixed edema from hypothyroidism for these patients they see in the summertime most of the time. And then just to prove their point, and this is the part that I love the most, they looked at Australia's Google Trends. <laughs> And Australia seasons are reversed then from ours. And sure enough, in December, that's when it peaks. And in June, that's when it troughs. So if you actually track it out, it's the exact opposite pattern of ours. So it proves that the seasonality and not just the timing actually matters. It is so damn smart. And yes, I recognize that they weren't actually looking at ankles or measuring things or, um, you know, or, or doing chart reviews. But they were like they, they used a data that already existed to kind of prove a point that they knew. And I just I thought it was so clever. I just I could not get over it. So every time I show it, I shared it with my section. They're like, that's nice, Paul. We're glad that you're happy. I shared it with Rahul. He was he was he was appropriately excited about it. I put it on Twitter. No one cared. <laughs> so now I'm forcing you all to listen to it now because I just think it's it's such a smart study. And and Paul, also what I was hinting at before, you had suggested the follow up study to this, which would be to look at the ordering of echocardiograms and is it seasonal as well because uh, patients are presenting with ankle edema. 
And uh, I, I think it's uh, if anyone wants to do it, uh, Paul, Paul doesn't want to do it. So it, we're putting it out there. If someone no, wants to do the follow up the studies there, just give me an acknowledgement, please. That's all yeah. I ask. A, a thank you at the end. <laughs> yeah, that's all I want. And then uh, check out our edema episode, which I don't remember the number 315, 316, something like that. And it was uh, it was a it sure. was a great one. Paul talks about Nicki Minaj. It's, it's great. <laughs> so um, yeah. I think. To move on, well, Paul, Ed, how many hotcakes did you want to give this full stack? Yeah, I mean, it's like a full stack, like the silver dollar pancakes. Like it's a little study, <laughs> but it's it's super cool. So okay, a, a modified score for them. The Google Trends searches is also fascinating and something that I got deeply into after reading this paper. Yeah, same. Yep. I'm playing. I yes. Yeah. Has I anyone ever played, played with, with Google Trends? Nora's barely paying attention to us right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's very useful. Yeah. If you Google Trends search uh, for the curbsiders, you see uh, basically nothing until our first episode in 2016, and then an abrupt and oh. meteoric rise, which I predict will just continue. Fantastic. Oh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Southern California Permanente Medical Group, SCPMG. They are looking for outpatient internal medicine physicians to join their clinics throughout Southern California. And who wouldn't want to live in Southern California? It has a beautiful Mediterranean climate, variety of activities and attractions. It's an amazing place to live, work, and play. They're offering a fulfilling practice where you're going to benefit by backup support, no overnight call, flexible scheduling, and work-life balance. And when you join them, you're not going to have to worry about the hassles of running a practice or an office, developing your patient base, prior offs and insurance billing. They're going to take care of that for you. And there's potential teaching opportunities and even a blended outpatient inpatient role may be available. So if you want to make a difference in a community that appreciates your passion and expertise, then join SCPMG as an outpatient internal medicine physician. Learn more or apply at scpmgphysiciancareers.com or call 866-449-1684. So Rahul, yeah. your, turn, your turn here. So... There is a antiviral medicine for COVID-19 that has been, uh, which I can't pronounce, which you will tell us how to pronounce, uh, which has been prescribed quite a bit lately. So the question is, does it work for standard risk patients? It was approved for high-risk patients, right, for emergency use. So tell us about this. Of course. And I will uh, just alert everybody, the brand name of what we're talking about is Paxlovid. Everybody is familiar with that. The generic name is Nirmatrelvir Ritonavir. And this is a medication that has FDA authorization for emergency use. And there is a persnickety distinction between authorization and approval that I don't think really matters to any frontline clinicians. I could be wrong. But uh, this medicine has FDA authorization uh, for use for outpatients who are at high risk for hospitalization and death from COVID-19. And ever since FDA granted the authorization to ritonavir-boosted numatrelvir, there have been a lot of questions raised about who and who doesn't benefit from this and kind of what the true downsides are. And so thanks to a press release from Pfizer, the manufacturer of the drug last month, uh, we finally have a little more information to guide practice. So I'm going to uh, take you through some of that uh, information. 
Uh, so we know with a high degree of confidence from the Epic HR study, which was published in an April issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, that uh, nirmatrelvir ritonavir or Paxlovid is highly effective at reducing hospitalization and death uh, among high-risk unvaccinated outpatients with COVID. And NIH, in response to that, currently recommends this as the first-line treatment in this group. Um, that is pretty uncontroversial. Um, but increasingly, vaccinated and boosted and generally low-risk people with COVID-19 are asking me if, you know, when having gotten COVID unexpectedly, experiencing what's basically a mild cold, should they take nirmatrelvir or ritonavir? I'm curious if any of you have had this experience of either patients or friends and family asking you about Paxlovid. Dr. Williams, I know you have thoughts. No, it's my experience is that it has been the majority of patients that ask for it, and even the ones that I've seen prescribed it, are patients that have at least been vaccinated and tend to be sort of in the lower risk. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. But yeah, I, I have the same experience, Rahul. Yeah. So people have had a lot of legitimate questions in my mind about, you know, what is the effect of nirmatrelvir ritonavir on symptoms, not just uh, morbidity and mortality. So the EPIC SR study, which even though the manuscript is not available yet, um, this is what this press release describes. So the question that the EPIC SR study was designed to assess was whether uh, Paxlovid shortens the time to resolution of symptoms in a low-risk population. And this was basically people who uh, had none of the high-risk conditions that would have qualified them for EPIC HR. So those are advanced age, uh, cardiovascular disease, obesity, immunosuppression, a variety of other things. So the people included in EPIC-SR were all low-risk outpatients with COVID-19. And they, uh, this included vaccinated people. Early on, uh, uh, vaccinated uh, adults were not enrolled, but as vaccination became more widely available, uh, vaccinated adults were enrolled. And Pfizer uh, reported that this study, uh, enrollment has been ceased because of failure to reach its primary endpoint. And the primary outcome in this study was uh, the time to uh, resolution, sustained resolution of symptoms uh, among patients uh, in the study. So this was a negative study. Um, enrollment was stopped. And, uh, you know, even though the manuscript is not yet available, we know that uh, nirmatrelvir ritonavir in low-risk patients did not hasten the time to resolution of symptoms. So there were two clues early on that this would be a negative study. And I'll tell you about them just briefly because they're interesting. One was that Pfizer announced that they were increasing the sample size of enrollment in the study. And this is something you see done when uh, uh, investigators are worried that a trial is underpowered to detect a rare event. And that was exactly the case in this study. Uh, it turns out low-risk vaccinated people tend to do pretty well from COVID. Uh, so there were not a lot of uh, outcome events. So the sample size was increased from 1,100 to 1,400 patients. But despite that, we still didn't see uh, a difference in the interim analysis. So it was announced that further enrollment was going to be closed uh, as of this month. And another clue comes from the EPIC HR study in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is that the subset of patients who were seropositive, they had a markedly attenuated benefit from nirmatrelvir ritonavir in, in comparison with patients who had not yet mounted an antibody response. And this is probably a reflection of the fact that by the time you've mounted an immune response and produced your own antibodies, you have limited viral replication, lower viral loads, you probably stand to benefit less from an antiviral compared with people who haven't started mounting an immune response. So that's just a hypothesis. It's not definitive. But those two things led me to wonder, you know, that EPIC-SR might be a negative study. And lo and behold, now we have uh, uh, this information that it was. 
So unfortunately, symptom relief was not reported in Epic HR, and we know from Epic SR uh, that nirmatrelvir ritonavir uh, did not alleviate symptoms in low-risk patients with COVID-19. And it's worth noting that uh, this drug is not totally benign. Um, dysgeusia, or an altered sense of taste, seems to be happening fairly commonly. I'm curious, Paul, if uh, you in your practice have had patients uh, that have been asking about this, have been complaining about the altered taste. Yeah, actually, probably the most bothersome adverse effect that I've heard about. It really seems to, to drive the patient to experience it nuts. Yeah, and I'll say that my my practice has been to um, the the older and sicker or anyone who's immunosuppressed is really who I'm recommending this for 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 patients who are younger and really don't have comorbidities or doing well. Uh, I'm I'm less likely to prescribe it. It is it can be a little bit challenging to prescribe because of all the drug interactions. You have to look look everything up, and sometimes you're having to alter the dose or hold doses of medications for eight days while they're on it. So it's it's not the most user friendly med, and um, but it's great it's great that we have it for the patients that uh, are highest risk and and need it. But uh, this will probably help me. Um, uh, I, I look forward to the full trial being published eventually, but this will probably help me just sort of talk some patients out of it who are lower risk and might not need the medication. That's probably the tack that I'll take. Yeah. I think that's the right interpretation of these data. So, you know, not to, to be a, a nihilist about the utility of this drug, it's, it's worth remembering that nirmatrelvir ritonavir, absolutely a game changer among patients at high risk uh, with COVID-19. And NIH recommends using uh, vaccination status, advanced age, and the presence of immunocompromise as sort of the strongest risk factors for severe outcomes. So for the average vaccinated, boosted, uh, low-risk person with COVID-19, to date, we really have no compelling evidence that nirmatrelvir ritonavir uh, hastens resolution of symptoms. So I agree with your interpretation, Matt, that most uh, young, healthy, vaccinated, boosted people are unlikely to see any benefit. Yeah. Uh, any more comments before we wrap it up here? I have a, a quick article, and this is this was the Hospital Medicine, the Society for Hospital Medicine put out some new choosing wisely recommendations. There was eleven recommendations, and I will the bottom line here. Uh, I will I will say that these were I felt these were just like common sense and common decency, Paul. What do you think about that? This is, we need some of that in medicine, that, right? That sounds nice, Matt. Yeah. yeah so sure. uh, these these refer. <laughs> Why does that feel like an attack? And, Why are you directing? <laughs> no, no. I just thought you would. Enjoy, I thought you would appreciate it because you're a very uh, common. I do. You you. I know you don't like when when you see things that don't make sense that are not good for patients. You don't like it. So I think you will like these recommendations. That's that's why I was saying. Uh, okay, that's a nice frame. Yeah. All right, I like that. And uh, so these are low cost and patient centered ones. The ones that I wanna avo- that I wanna highlight. So I and I'm not gonna go through all of them uh, for interest of time. But so we've talked about this many times on the show. Please don't just turn up the oxygen and think 100 percent is better. If the patients uh, don't don't artificially raise the oxygen saturation to above 96% on peripheral capillary oxygen sats. Uh, We've talked about that before. It's good to say it again. In the hospital, let the patient sleep, especially if the patient is doing well. Like, just let them sleep. Don't wake them up for routine vitals. And further, don't just automatically order a, a CBC and a chemistry every day, especially if the patient's stable and you're not really looking for anything. I see this both of these things, patients woken up in the middle of the night for labs, and we we're planning on discharging them, and we don't 
expect the vitals to be abnormal and we don't expect the labs to be abnormal, nor do we want them to because the patient's ready to go and they're, they're not complaining of anything. And then finally, urinary catheters for convenience. Paul, let's, let's not do that, okay? Great. It, yeah, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> Seems bad. Yeah, for convenience or incontinence. Uh, I know sometimes patients ask, but it's, it's dangerous, it's not recommended, and we, sh- we shouldn't be putting them, uh, them in. So that's, those, those are some ones that I wanted to highlight, but look at the full list. There's some other good stuff on there. Rahul, you, you practice primarily as a hospitalist. Uh, are, are you seeing these things done routinely? I, I, I think, can you get on board? <laughs> oh, I see uh, all the time. As you're talking, I'm trying to decide in my brain how I'm going to, uh, in the most persuasive way possible, relay these recommendations to my house staff. Uh, I'm on service right now. And uh, I think the fact that Matt Watto uh, (laughs) brought it up on the show will be uh, compelling enough because my efforts to cut down on uh, daily lab orderings have uh, have not been successful. Yeah, it's it's hard and I I think these need these are good like quips projects to to enact some of these things. But I think there're things we should be thinking about, especially the letting patients sleep in the hospital. Uh, that's really been in the literature a lot lately. I haven't yet seen a great implementation of it, but you know, I'm I'm working in only one place and uh, it's easier said than done. I think we have to change expectations of multiple team members and uh and the patients as well so uh but but we should move towards trying to do some of these things because they are low cost and they would be good for patients and uh good for outcomes so so that's that and i think uh paul we're ready for an outro all right smoothly transitioned this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole yummy A plus. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest recapping the latest practice changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high value practice changing knowledge, and we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Or you can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to thank my co-host for this episode for helping to write and produce this episode. Our show is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. And our theme music was composed by the great Dr. Stuart Brigham. So with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Nora Plout Toronto. I've been Dr. Rahul Balwant Ganatra. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>